Hi, my name is Sunny, and today we're going to be reading Philippians 2, 1 through 11. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not look only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Amen. What, does she do a great job or what? Amen. Amen. Well, we are in the book of Philippians in this series called uh, Joy in Troubled Times. So you might take a Bible or take your phone, go to Philippians chapter 2. And by the way, we're praying for each other uh, during the week. You can receive a prayer prompt. Someone texted me yesterday and said, I'm, I'm so glad that we're doing this. So if you'd like to receive a prayer prompt at 9.03 in the morning, you can text PRAY to 90903. If I could read, that would be wonderful. 903-290-1395. Friday night, Ruthie and I were at a football game. Our grandson was, uh, he's a junior, and he got to play a little bit because the score was 47 to 7. <laughs> and what was amazing was, halfway through the game, my wife turned to me and she said, there are players who are really strong on that other team, and they're very fast, and they're tough, but they lost 47 to 7 because they were not unified. They didn't play as a team. And so what every coach tries to do is he tries to get his team unified. And parents kind of know what that's like when our kids are, uh, the, the relief that we feel when our kids are playing together and they're sharing together and they're working together and it's peaceful in the home, there's kind of a sense of relief and joy that parents feel. Um, educators try to build a united sense of spirit, get everybody on the same page in a classroom. Um, business people know the importance of communicating so everyone is on the same page and morale just goes up. Politicians dream of a party that's united. Boy, and how rare is that? I mean, we live in a really fragmented, fractured time, don't we? It's hard to find any subject that people agree about. We're, cho we're told we have to, to take a side. We have to pick a side and stand in it. And if you change your mind or if you're tired to ride the fence, you're, you're called weak. And so the enemy, the person who doesn't agree with you, we view as our enemy and we eat or ignorant and we try to win them over, or we canceled them. It doesn't matter what the subject is. In our culture today, we are so divided. Vaccine or no vaccine? Mask or no mask? Democrat or Republican? 
Fox or CNN? Dogs or cats? I mean, we're just, we're just fragmented. And the question is, how did we get this way? And we don't want it to be this way, but we're not sure what to change. And it's not only our culture, it's true in our, our, our communities, it's true in our families, true in churches all over the country. I've never seen a time, and it's all on social media, isn't it? And everybody's expressing their opinion and kind of combating with each other on social, me- social media. What do you do? And this is where Philippians is such a huge help to us. It's about joy. In fact, some of us would say this is our favorite book in all of the New Testament. 17 different times Paul, who's sitting in prison, writes about joy. In chapter 1, verse 4, he says, he says it's a joy to pray for you. Chapter 1, verse 18, he says, I'm just rejoicing the gospel's being preached, in spite of the fact some are preaching with, with bad motives. And in chapter 1, verse 25, he says, God left me here for your joy. He loves this church, just loves the people. He fought hard to get this church uh, established. It cost him a beating. It cost him time in prison. And now it's been four years. He's been keeping track. He's been watching them. And he's noticing a little division popping up in the church. There are two sisters or two women uh, in chapter 4 who just can't seem to get along. And so he writes to them, and he's going to call them to a united front. He wants them all to be on the same page. And he says, if you would just do that, it would bring me joy. So look at chapter, one, chapter 2, verse 1. He says, so if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any partic- participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, you get the feeling he's setting them up for something. By the way, when he says if, that's not if in the sense of doubting, questioning whether that is the, the case or not. He says there are four realities that all Christians share together. These are four experiences that we've all known. We all have known what it's like to be encouraged by Christ. We've all known what it's like to sense the presence of the Holy Spirit. We all know he, the comfort of, of His love. And when he says, if you know that, that's like when your teenager comes to you and says, if you love me, you'll let me use the car Saturday night. Because you love me. Since you love me. So Paul says, because all these things are true for us, he said, do me a favor. I want you to do something for me. Verse 2, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. He says, it would really cause my cup to overflow. I would overflow with joy if you guys could all just be on the same page. Why is unity so rare? Why do families fight? Why do business partnerships break up? Why are there more lawsuits right now than just about any other time that any of us can remember? Why do nations move into civil war? Why can't teams pull together to win games? Why is that? It's not hard to answer that question. In fact, he does it in verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition. I want my way. Just plain old-fashioned selfishness. Selfish ambition or conceit, boasting about what I have, who I am, where I have been. But he says, in humility, consider others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of of others. Paul says the source of conflict in homes, in businesses, on sports teams, in cities, in nations, in churches, in businesses, in friendships can all boil down to one thing, one word. 
Pride. Pride. It was the first sin, wasn't it? Isaiah tells us that Satan originally was a beautiful angel created by God to bring him glory, one of the highest of the angels we think. But because of pride and who he was and how he looked, fell from heaven. It was the first sin on earth as the first man and the first woman, our father and our mother, Adam and Eve, said, I'm entitled to what I want. Selfish ambition. It's pride. Sense of entitlement. I ha- I'm my own authority in this life. And Proverbs tells us that pride is always the cause of destruction in families, in businesses. Proverbs 16, 18, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. So the Bible says that someone who is self-absorbed is someone you cannot get close to. They create destruction in marriages and families. A self-absorbed person will wreck kids, wreck relationships with fellow workers, will make the spirit of a team impossible to be united, will create havoc in small groups and even in churches. So what's the answer? He says in humility. And humility is like oil in a machine that keeps the gears from grinding. It keeps the relationships from grinding. And the hard thing is to define humility. Because once you think you have it, you lost it. All right? I'm going to write a book someday, Humility and How I Attained It. Well, I've lost it. Lost it right there. How do you define humility? Someone said humility is not, it's not groveling. It's not, it, it's not denying your strengths. It's being honest about your weaknesses. Just honest to be honest about who I am. Someone said humility is not putting yourself down. It's lifting other people up. Someone else said um, humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. And what Paul does here is to say, you need to count others more significant than yourself. You need to consider the interest of others more than your own interest. And boy, how hard is that? Just try to do that when you're in heavy traffic. Just try to do that when you're in the argument about politics. Just try to do that in a grocery store when you're in the longest, lowest line or in an airport on an airplane. Boy, the Lord has just worked on me in this area of selfishness and pride and humility, and he's got a lot more work to do. We have, he did that because we have four kids, and I always thought I wanted two kids, Alpha and Omega, you know, just kind of sum them up. Then we had three, and then we had four, and it didn't take long for selfishness to rear its head in, in me. I like a clean house. Ruthie will tell you that. Not a cluttered house. I like milk in a glass and not on the table or on the floor. And what did God do? He gave me four kids who spilt milk regularly, did things like lick car windows. I mean, why would you do that? <laughs> Drop stuff on the floor. You have not lived until you have walked through the house in the middle of the night and stepped barefoot on a Lego. God just raised all of that in myself. Where does humility come from? Where does it come from? Paul says it begins with the way you think. It begins with your mindset, with your outlook. In fact, he says 
have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ. I like the way the NIV, the NASB, all these versions of the Bible put it. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Everybody has a mindset. Everybody has a way of looking at things. It's like we all have lens in our glasses and we have a way of perceiving. We all have paradigms in our lives. We all have certain attitudes. And Paul is encouraging the church in Philippi and every church today to adopt the mindset of Jesus. He calls it the mind of Christ, the way Jesus thought. In fact, he tells us that living for Jesus just means learning to think like Jesus. I mean, you look at the life of Jesus. Look at this attitude. Look at this. Have you ever been amazed at how Jesus could keep his cool when everybody else is blowing up around him? You ever been amazed how Jesus was able to think clearly and speak compassionately when he's constantly being badgered and baited by the Pharisees? I mean, something would rise. How did he contain himself? How did he do, how did, could he treat small children with such kindness when everyone else was dismissing their children in that culture? Well, Paul says it all goes back to the way he thought, to his mindset. And then he says, I'll show you what I mean. And beginning in verse 6 and going all the way through verse 11 is one of the most magnificent passages of Scripture, one of the greatest texts of literature ever written as he describes what it means to have a mindset, an outlook of humility. What he writes is probably an early hymn. In fact, I think the early church probably sang this. Maybe Paul wrote it. Maybe he adopted it. Maybe he learned it somewhere. And he tells us so much about the mindset of Jesus. And every word matters. And what I want you to keep in mind as we walk through this is Paul is not just giving us great theology this is, that, this is ethical. This is practical. Paul is saying, what I want you to know is, I'm writing this so that you can adore Jesus, worship him because he's so worthy of it, but I also want you to emulate him. I want you to imitate him. I want you to have and adopt the same way of thinking that Jesus had because he says that's the way you get unity. Unity doesn't come from talking about unity. Unity comes from people bowing the knee and adopting the same mindset of Jesus. Unity comes from humility, he says, and joy comes from unity. So it's learning to think like Jesus. And this makes some people very nervous. Now, Jesus is our Savior, and he is our Savior, but he's also our example. And we can't do it. We can't follow him perfectly. But the good news is he gives us desire and the power to do it. And although we don't do it perfectly, we're under grace. But he says, you and I can adopt a way of thinking like Jesus had. A way of thinking that led to the actions and the things that he did. And it all starts with his mindset. So let's just kind of walk through these verses and look at the way Jesus models humility. And this, by the way, this is one of the reasons I believe the Bible is true, because nobody would have ever made up a humble God. Doesn't seem to make sense. Look what he says, verse 6. Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. And there's a lot of theology here. He's always been God. When he says he's in the form of God, doesn't mean he was kind of like God, sort of like God, or just appeared like God. No, he's the very essence of God. 
himself, has the very nature of God. And we use that word form in the same way. We talk, talk about an athlete being in good form. And what we mean is his outward performance matches the inward excellence that he has. Paul simply says, Jesus has always been God. Now think about what that means. It means Jesus was not a created being. It means that he did not begin his life when he was born in Bethlehem. It means Jesus is not God's assistant. He's not the junior partner in God uh, in heaven. He's, he's not like the vice president of heaven. He is the full-fledged member of the Holy Trinity, equal with the Father in every way from all of eternity. It means in Isaiah 6, when the prophet sees the angels bowing down and worshiping and crying, holy, 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 they were talking about Jesus as much as they were about the Father and the Holy Spirit. It means Jesus was present at creation. It means Jesus ruled and reigned from all of eternity past. And it means if you want to know what God is like, watch Jesus. It means all the privileges and the prerogatives that come from being God were his. It means he's the darling of heaven. It means he, he was the ultimate object of affection. All of the praise of the universe. Angels could not walk by the throne without stopping and crying, worthy are you, worthy are you. Now, why do I stress this? It's because this is what separates us from a lot of religions today, some of whom knock on your door. For many, many hundreds of years, people have argued about who Jesus was, and people will say to us, well, I believe in Jesus, and the question is, what Jesus do you believe in? Do you believe in the Jesus of the Bible or a Jesus of your, of your imagination? In 325, a council of early church leaders gathered at Nicaea to argue whether Jesus was a created being or was he God and always had been God. And here's what they came with. This comes from the Nicene Creed. We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father. Through Him all things were made for us and for our salvation. What an awesome statement. This is where Jesus was when He began. And He's going to take a series of steps down. He's going to demote Himself. He's going to decrease this is where he began, in the highest place. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Here's Jesus enjoying all the adoration of heaven, and he relaxes his grip on his privileges, on his prerogatives. That's hard for us to do because we're clutchers by human nature. We, we grasp, we clutch power and titles and position and possessions and time. We clutch our children, our jobs, friendships, and attention. Even the most mature Christian in this room has a hard time relaxing grip on what we count dear for the sake of the kingdom of God. And here's Jesus holding all the privileges of deity. Everywhere he turns in the universe, there are angels crying out, holy, holy, worthy is the lamb. The whole earth is full of his glory. And Jesus does not consider his position, equality with God, something to be held on to if it will keep him from the mission that his father gave him. Jesus says, I'll relax my grip on my prerogatives. If that will please the father, if this is what it takes to save people, I'll give up my rights, my right to my rights. So it says he 
emptied himself. You know, he says he made himself nothing. And that bothers me. Because nothing comes from nothing. You can't take nothing to the bank. You can't do anything with nothing. We want to be something. We want to accomplish something. Here's Jesus who made himself nothing. Deliberately demoted himself. The word emptied himself. Not only does he loosen his grips, he lets go of his rights, of his privileges. He deliberately stripped himself of all the prerogatives of being God. Doesn't mean he was less divine. He's still fully God, but he lays aside anything that would keep him from becoming fully man. His glory, his privileges, the worship of heaven. He remains all that he was, God, in order to become what he wasn't, a man. Years ago, I I went to a black church, visited with a friend of mine, and heard a black preacher talk about Jesus going to the temple when he was 12 years old. And as I recall it, uh, the black preacher said this. He said, Jesus was being questioned by the lawyers at the temple, and they asked him the question, Son, what's your name? On my mother's side, Jesus. On my father's side, Emmanuel. How old are you? Well, on my mother's side, I'm 12. On my father's side, from eternity to eternity. Where'd you come from, boy? On my mother's side, Nazareth. On my father's side, from the throne of glory. Boy, the whole place just erupted in applause. God doesn't change. This is the doctrine of immutability. And Jesus lays aside temporarily immutability in order to go from being a baby to a boy to be a a man, to change physically. God is omniscient. God knows all things. And Jesus temporarily lays aside his knowledge of all things in order to learn to read and to write and to work with wood. He's not going to use his power for himself. He's not going to turn stones into bread for himself. He's not going to call for the help of angels for himself. And as I studied about what Paul says about this, it it occurred to me how, how violent this was. How profane. It says in verse 7, he he took the form of a servant, and that's the Greek word doulos, slave. A slave has no possessions. A slave has no rights. A slave has nothing of his own. A slave has no will of his own. A slave belongs to somebody else. Being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, he humbled himself. It's one of the reasons, as I said, I believe the Bible is true. Who would have ever invented a humble God, and it just boggles my mind to think of the transcendent creator of the universe becoming a man, as much a man as if he were never God, as much God as if he were never a man. He's not like Clark Kent, you know, Superman. Superman's from Krypton. Superman um, puts, puts on a disguise, although he's Superman. He acts like he's not. Um, So he wears glasses. Lois can't figure it out. He's 6'4", 230, ripped like crazy. And she still can't figure out he's Superman. But Superman doesn't need to sleep. Superman never gets tired. Jesus needs to sleep. Jesus gets tired. He is fully man. And you want to ask the question, if we were doing this, we were staging the incarnation, where would we do it? Rome? That's the center of political action. The emperor is considered God. If you wanted to be close to political power, you'd have him born in Rome. 
Athens. That's the center of philosophy and wisdom. If you wanted him to share his wisdom from all of eternity, surely you'd have him born there. Jerusalem, to be God's high priest, but he appears as a fetus born in a stable to a blue-collar Jewish woman and placed in an animal trough, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus, fully God, all the privileges of God, and now he feels limited. He's got flesh. He's got to use doors. He has to ride a mule or donkey. He has to eat. He has to sleep. His muscles get sore. Can you imagine the God of the universe saying, okay, mom, yes, sir, dad, whatever you say. Think of the humiliation. Now he rubs shoulders with people he has created, and instead of hearing, holy, 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 he hears people say, get out of the way, Jew boy. Who do you think you are, Jesus? You think you're somebody special? Well, you're not. You need to know your place. So he trades worship for curses. He trades praise for spit in his face. You see the violence of the incarnation? He's never given credit for who he is, credit he deserved. No one understands him. Imagine how hard this would be for the Father in heaven. I mean, we dads, we want to protect our children. We want people to treat our children with respect and with kindness. I was talking this last week with a buddy of mine on the phone, and he said, he was telling me about when a guy began to date his daughter, he said, there was a little phrase that I used for the guys who dated my daughter. If you mistreat my daughter, I cannot guarantee I will act as a Christian. you imagine how hard it was for the father? I heard a speaker some, one time tell what it was, was like for the second person of the Trinity become, to become a man. He said it would be like a man becoming an ant. You know, just kind of crawling around like an ant. But he said, no, that's not it. Because men and ants are both creatures. And for the creator to become a creature is a whole lot bigger gap than for a creature to become another creature. So from equality with God, lofty position, down the ladder he goes, relaxes his grip, turns loose of his privileges, what was his by right. He adopts the mindset of a servant, of a slave. He humbles himself. He serves. He feeds. He helps self-centered people like me and all of us. And he's not done. He says he, being found in human form, he humbles himself and becomes obedient to death. He obeys to the point of death. Jesus, who breathes life into all things, who sustains your heartbeat every moment, keeps it going, stands toe-to-toe with death and says, you win. You win. That's, and we want to say, that's far enough, Jesus. No more. And the angels maybe were saying, that's enough, Jesus. That's just enough. Oh, there's one more. It's not enough to leave heaven and become a man. It's not enough to be misunderstood by his family all of his life. It's not enough to be whispered about all through his life. It's not enough to be deserted by his friends and betrayed by his own disciples and handed over to the mocking and the terrible scourges of the Romans. Not enough to die, obedient to death, even death on a cross. How do you hope to die? I'm sure you've thought about it. 
maybe quietly in your sleep. I understand that when someone is executed in our country, they're given an injection because that's the humane thing to do. When Socrates was executed, they gave him hemlock, poison to drink, and he, he laid back on a soft mattress and drifted off. Not Jesus. The cross was invented to be the most painful, the most lengthy, enduring punishment possible. Roman citizens were not subjected to crucifixion. Jews counted anyone who was crucified as being cursed by God, and he was. Common men and women walk by, laugh, mock him, pick up rocks to throw at him, ugly accusations, and Jesus dies on a cross, alone, abandoned, broken, in the place of those who should be there on the cross instead of him. Bleeding, gasping for breath, and into his soul floods the horror and the tragedy and the pain of sin committed by Christians throughout, by people throughout all time. And the Father pours out his wrath on him on the cross. This is the basement. You can't get any lower than this. It starts at the top and goes all the way to the basement. You know, bestsellers today are all about rags to riches, aren't they? People who start at the bottom go all the way to the top. The story of Jesus is the story of riches to rags, burial rags. The greatest story ever told of our Savior. The story of a God who voluntarily humbles himself six times, decreasing, downscaling, downsizing, dying for the penalty of my sin and yours. And he willingly does it. No one does it to him. In fact, I was just thinking a moment ago while we're singing, the most amazing part of watching the life of Jesus in the last week is that he's in control. Nobody else is in control. Pilate's not in control. The high priests are not in control. The Sanhedrin's not in control. And Jesus stand there, stands there absolutely in control of it all. He voluntarily lays his life down. Why? So you and I might have life. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. During World War II, an Oxford professor named C.S. Lewis did a series of radio talks. And those talks were collected and became a book called Mere Christianity. And here's how C.S. Lewis tells the story. He says, in the Christian story, God descends to reascend. He comes down, down from the heights of absolute being into time and space, down into humanity, down to the very roots and seabed of the nature he has created. But he goes down to come up again and bring the whole ruined world up with him. One has the picture of a strong man stooping lower and lower to get himself under some great complicated burden. He must stoop in order to lift. He must almost disappear under the load before he incredibly straightens his back and marches off with the whole mass swaying on his shoulders. Or one may think of a diver, first reducing himself to nakedness, then glancing in midair, then gone with a splash, vanished rushing down through green and warm water into black and cold water, down through increasing pressure into the death-like region of ooze and slime and old decay, and then back up again to color and light, his lungs almost bursting, till suddenly he breaks the surface again, holding in his hand the dripping, precious thing that he went down to recover. That's just awesome. 
So look what the father did. Verse 9, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. All of heaven opens up to welcome him back. The Father's arms are open to welcome him back. He's embraced. He's super exalted. That's what the Greek says. Super exalted, hyper exalted to the highest place. And were you and I to see Jesus today, he is like no other. He's in a class by himself. He is filled and replete with glory. And he has been given a name. You know, the greatest name when this was written was Nero. He's the emperor of Rome. And because Philippi was a Roman city, when the citizens of Philippi would gather together, had some gathering, they would all bend their knees and they would all cry out with, with one voice, Caesar is Lord. They use his name. And Paul says, there's a name above that name. There's a man above that man. The name of Jesus, every knee will bow. In heaven, so Gabriel and Michael and all the angels will bow. On earth, everyone who is ever born will bend the knee to Jesus. Every godly person, every worshiper of every religion, every atheist, every evil person who ever lived, every person who never gave much interest at all to spiritual things, every president, your mother, your father, your spouse, and you, will all, all of us will bow our, knee, our, our knees to Jesus. Those under the earth, all the demons in hell, Satan himself, and there's a day when the whole world will wake up to who Jesus is, the only Savior, the only Lord. And the question is, do we bow now or do we bow on that day? Scripture says those who do not bow now, they will cry out for the rocks to come and fall on them and cover them from the sight of the Lamb. We didn't bow low in His presence. We'll gnash our teeth. We didn't bow low in His presence because He's Lord. He's risen from the dead, and he is Lord. Last question. Why did Paul write this? Why did he write this? I think there are two reasons. He wrote it so that we would adore Jesus as he is, so our worship would be filled with so much passion, it would be quite hot worship of Jesus and who he is. His perfection given to me, my condemnation given to him. My separation from God given to him, his intimacy with God given to me. He dies for me, forgives me, forgives you. But I think the main reason is it's an illustration. It's an illustration. This is what humility looks like. He's given it so that we might follow his example. He's calling every Christian to relax our grip, to let go of our rights, to humble ourselves, to become servants, and become obedient, which means in God's kingdom, the highest serve the lowest. The greatest are the servants. Somebody's become nobodies. The person who possesses the most gives the most. And I mean, sometimes we have to choose against ourselves and get out of our comfort zone, give up rights that we might think we have. And the right answer to every question is what will please Jesus now? What will make Jesus look good because he is good? I want to close with this. Years ago, um, I, I had an incredible privilege of 
one of Bill Bright's supporters called me. He was in our church. He said, would you like to have lunch with Bill Bright? And I said, are you kidding? I'd give my right arm to have lunch with Bill Bright. Founder of Campus Crusade, author of the Four Spiritual Laws, the genius behind the Jesus film, and uh, his supporter, Cliff, Jelm, and myself and Bill Bright sat at a lunch table in a little restaurant. And I took that opportunity to say, Dr. Bright, I'm pastor of this church, and I'm feeling such spiritual pressure. Do you ever, ever feel pressure? And he went, never. <laughs> You've got 100,000 staff members all over the world. You never feel pressure? He said, Sam, have you ever heard of the Holy Spirit? I felt about that small. Then he said this. He said, when I came to Christ, I got on my knees, and I wrote a contract out with God. And I said, God, it is your yours to provide for me and lead me and be what I need and it is mine to serve you. And he said, I signed it, Bill Bright, a slave of Jesus Christ. And he said this, he said, I've been asked how I'd like to be remembered and I only have one desire and that is to be remembered as a slave of Jesus. On our tombstone, Von Ed and I have both agreed our names would be inscribed and underneath would be written, slaves of Jesus, be a slave of Jesus is the most liberating, wonderful adventure one can possibly have. After that lunch, I went back to my office and got on my knees and I took a piece of paper and I wrote out, Dear Jesus, you have promised to guide me. You have promised to provide for me. It will be my place to obey you and serve you. And I signed it, Sam Shaw, a slave of Jesus Christ. And before God, I tell you, the pressure lifted. So he says, adopt the mindset of Jesus. And I can't think of a better way to conclude this morning than having communion together, where we remember our Savior. So I want to ask those who are going to help us, if you would go to the elements, prepare them, and come prepare to serve us. And while they're doing that, let me just explain some things in our church here uh, we have what's called open communion, which means if you're a follower of Jesus, you've given your life to him, and you're walking with him, we invite you to partake because it's the Lord's Supper, and we believe he invites you to join with us in taking the Lord's Supper. If you're not a Christian, then I would just let the elements pass by, and no one will say anything to you. No one will think anything. This is for the family of God, and if you don't feel like you're walking with Jesus right now, then take these moments right now to say, Jesus, I, I resurrender to you. I humble myself before you. Please forgive me. I want you to be the Lord of my life. I'm just a slave of Jesus Christ. Then you can feel free to take the elements with us. These trays have two kinds of elements in them. There's the, some of the, well, there's the prepackaged elements that none of us like. Right? But because of COVID, we want to be as careful and loving. And so if you'd like to take a prepackaged like I have here, feel free to do that. Or if you've got to like to take the regular elements, the bread and a cup, you can do that from each one of these trays. It'll also help us to know as a church uh, how to proceed forward with communion. So I want to ask the men if you would just begin passing these elements. And when you receive it, just hold it in your hand for a moment until all of us have been served. And in the meantime... Would you just bow and say, Lord Jesus, thank you for what you have done for me. Thank you for the kind of Savior you are. 
Help me to have your outlook. Help me to see things the way you see them. While we finish, if you need gluten-free, it's available outside. Just feel free to uh, go outside and get that if that would be helpful to you. Is there anyone who has not been served and you'd like to receive communion?
raise your hand if that's the case. Okay, would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, thank you for being so rich in mercy. For your great love with which you loved us. The kindness that you show us. Lord Jesus, once again, we thank you and we adore you for giving yourself, coming down the ladder, taking the form of a person, a servant, not only going to die, but on a cross. And we look forward to the day when we will kneel before you and we will lift our hands and we will cry with saints from every nation, tribe, and time. You are worthy. Worthy is the lamb that was slain. We'll give you thanks for forgiveness, for hope, for eternal life. We pray that you would help us to be the kind of people who create unity by humbling ourselves, following your model. In Christ's name, amen. The Apostle Paul said the night he was betrayed that Jesus took bread, he broke it, gave it to his followers, and he said, take and eat this. Do this, he said, in remembrance of me. Let's eat. The same night, he took a cup and he said, this is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. He said, when you do this, he said, remember me. Let's drink together. And whenever we do this, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Isn't it good to be a child of God? Isn't it good? Let's stand together. My prayer is that the Lord would bless you and keep you. The Lord who loves you would make his face to shine on you and be gracious to you. That the Lord would lift up his face toward all of us and give us his peace. And if that is your prayer and you agree with that, would you say amen? Amen. God bless you, folks. There are folks who will be here at the front as you leave. We'd love to pray for you about anything that we possibly can. God bless you.